Moonpig. Hello world and welcome to the Moonpig Tech Podcast. I am Jacob. And I'm Richard. And today we're going to talk a bit about secure software. So historically, security teams, where they even existed at all, are a bit of an enigma to the rest of the business. Um, most of the time until the business gets in trouble. So how do we get a bit more transparency around security and tech teams and reduce the complexity of those uh, engagements and ultimately continue to deploy frequently in a way that considers all of those threats and risks that apply to that business or to our business in that case. So today we have with us Tash Norris. She is our head of security here at Moonpeak and we're gonna bit, uh, we're gonna talk a bit about evolving our security capabilities and how we are approaching security as part of our development lifecycle. Hi, I'm Tash Naris. Do you wanna introduce yourself a bit? Yeah, so uh, I head up the security function at Moonpig. Uh, I've been at Moonpig since November, and before that was across at Photobox, who I'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, and historically, I've worked in financial services across roles like security architecture, um, security infrastructure, AppSec, and cloud security. That's quite a lot. That's impressive. Awesome. So uh, as you already kind of hinted, security is a really, really big topic, right? So what does security mean to us here at Moonpig? So security has always been a big part of what we do at Moonpig. Traditionally, security has been dealt with by our um, sister company, Photobox, um, as had a, a number of, of what we call group functions, things like HR, finance, our facilities. So there's people that, that help uh, make sure we've got toilet paper through to securing our applications, not the same team. <laughs> and, um, and so we had this big security team at Photobox, but as um, a lot of people uh, may know, your avid listeners, um, and our, our teammates that we've been separating from Photobox so that we can operate independently. And as part of that process, we have started to build out our own security function. This is great because it means we can start to think about what security means specifically to Moonpig Group, so Moonpig and Greets, mm -hmm. rather than having to think about all five of those companies we had to cover off before, which is five completely different tech stacks, uh, five completely different risk landscapes and types of threats and, and teams, uh, which allows us to be more specific in the types of things that we want to go after. And so security is hugely important. It's, it's part of our DNA when we think about serving our customers well and doing the right thing for them. Um, but it's also something that we have to actively think about and so a lot of what we're going to be doing as we start to mature our security function at Moonpig is how do we how do we build things securely, right? How does security become something that's just part of the way we do things and is a natural part of our culture rather than a specific requirements gathering activity or a, a dedicated exercise? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, that's quite a challenge, I should imagine. Uh, we've got six, seven, eight development teams on the go at the moment maybe more I've lost count um, <laughs> and I guess there's only only a, a small team of security people at the moment so how, how are you going to encourage that culture what's what's the first step we're definitely a small team uh, I've been a team of one for, for a little while uh, while still using those photo box resources and we're we're expanding rapidly uh, I used to talk about building um, security pyramid schemes 
which is <laughs> <laughs> completely illegal. Um, but is where I, it was this whole idea of security champions, right? Which is where you um, identify people in, in tech and you uh, volunteer them to, to talk <laughs> about security. I am quickly coming to the realization that while security champions works in the short term, it only really works if someone is really passionate about it. And so what we have to think about is actually how does um, security become a much easier way to do business and a more natural thing to do. And so there's a couple of things that we're thinking about at Moonpig and have started to, started to do as well. One is security should be part of our objectives the same way feature releases are. And so when we think about the way we measure performance, it's the things that we release, right? The impact we have directly to customers and a secure product has a, a great impact. It's sometimes harder to quantify, but it's a, it's a positive impact. And so one of the things we need to do is make sure that our engineers are empowered to make great decisions. And often that empowerment comes from hitting their objectives. And so we have to work that into that process. The other is around that education and support around security. The more that we invest as much training and resource as we do for learning about development in the cloud or containers or GraphQL, um, in best practice for security. So things like OWASP top 10, um, good defensive security, those types of things. And so a big thing for me that I wanna really start to think about over the next year is as engineers start to think about their own career progression and they start to work towards that next level, whatever that looks like, how do we make security part of that bar for what a great engineering manager looks like? So how do we, um, and equally, I have a lot to deliver, and as you mentioned, a very small team. And so one of the things that I've started to think about is as we come across projects in the security team, especially short-term projects, how we can almost do so small, short secondments from engineering teams, and not just engineering, project managers too, scrum masters, um, people in the in the business, so even PR teams, right, legal, anyone that wants to learn about security, allowing them to come into the security team on a short-term basis to deliver a feature or a project, anything from a full sprint to just some 10% time through to a quarter at most. But what that does is it gives them the ability to increase their own performance capabilities, increase their experience, allow us to upskill them on maybe something like pen testing, uh, or if they're from the business, maybe they want to learn about compliance and risk to further their career, maybe in a finance team. Um, it helps me because I don't have to hire another person. <laughs> I can keep mm. my budget slow, but I get that value and that input. I get to learn from someone else in the business. But most importantly, that person can go back to their team. And as they go forward for a promotion, they've now got an extra piece in their arsenal to talk about that allows them to show their own development and self-growth and allow them to have a greater impact on their team. And so they still become part of my security pyramid scheme. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in a way that I think provides greater value to me and to them, but also doesn't hold them to a long-term commitment or creates this idea that only they are responsible for security in their team. Mm. Um, something like that to work needs the investment across the business and we're really lucky to have a closer relationship as a security team with our HR team. And so they are incredibly passionate about this idea. For me, it's a great way to also support career switches. Uh, so people in um, maybe sales, commercial teams, HR teams, finance, who wanna look at getting into tech and aren't sure how, um, having these short-term engagements and giving them a chance to try things out um, 
fail fast or actually succeed well and quickly in a, in a way that's low risk uh, is really important to me. And that's really cool. And, and one of the things that I was thinking, if you, even if they only work for you with like a couple of weeks or maybe like yeah, a couple of months, I feel like now you, you created a relationship with someone in another department, right? I think historically what security suffer quite a lot from is isolation and just be like, oh yeah, there's a security team and we don't really know who they are and they just tell us we need to do things differently and no one really likes that. Whereas if you're like, oh yeah, I've worked with different people in the business, they know me, I know what they are doing, they understand why it's important, then I think it becomes more of a general mindset. Yeah. Is it fair to say? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I can't tell you how many companies I've seen rebrand their security team. Um, some multiple times, the only reason they're doing that is because their current brand has a, a negative attribution to it. And so it's really easy to create these teams where they are called um, security says no or the wall or <laughs> all of these awful phrases. And it's because they're unapproachable, inaccessible and ultimately out of date. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Building strong relationships across multiple departments certainly makes things easier. Um, I know you guys um, would have seen, we occasionally do lock picking in the office. Yeah. So I have a lock picking kit. It is strange. It's not as unusual in the security world, <laughs> but I appreciate when I brought it into the office the first time, I don't know if you guys know this, our CEO um, pulled our CTO aside. So Nico, our CEO, talked to Peter, the CTO and went, is this an analogy or is she actually breaking into our office? <laughs> <laughs> and um, Peter was like, no, no, she's, she's going to teach people how to pick locks. And he was like, are we, um, are we in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> and um, we're like, no, no, this is actually a really great analogy for uh, designing things securely, right? Uh, locks are, are great. They serve a purpose, but they're so easy to pick. Padlocks, I can't even tell you how easy they are to pick. Mm. Um, and so they're a great analogy, but more importantly for me, doing lock picking in our kind of communal um, breakout area where a lot of people eat lunch was a really great way to meet people from around the business and build those relationships in really quick moments where they didn't have to talk about security. I can just teach them to pick a lock. Mm. Um, but it breaks that ice and builds that relationship up. And the same way these secondments or placements or whatever we want to call it, that project collaboration, it builds that relationship up so that if they're sat at their desk and they see something or hear something or they just have a question and they think, oh, it might only be a small thing, now it's just a small thing to ask. Whereas if they had a bar of trying to find out who their security team was, trying to convince the security team that they're not doing something bad and they promise they're good, um, they might not talk to us. And so for me, it's really important to reduce the barrier as much as possible for that conversation with security because it's often those tiny questions that create much bigger um, projects and opportunities to increase our defenses. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a lot of sense. I kind of see in this as you're spreading sort of security seeds across the team <laughs> and watching it grow, um, which can only be a good thing. I think historically for me, the security has always come too late in the development pipeline. Um, it's like the team will go away and build some stuff and then when they're ready to release it, it'll get pen tested and like that's oh oops that's a bit late and you know might delay your project so I guess with this you're, you're trying to build it in much earlier yeah um culture is that that initial piece right there where you invest in the people and they start to ask questions but yeah, there's so many different processes and tools you can um, invest in or just spend time on that are completely free 
that um, brings security, I guess, more to the forefront in, in um, development life cycles. One of my um, pet peeves that I don't think I speak publicly enough about is this whole shift security left thing. Um, the reason it's a frustration is because the assumption when you say shift security left is that there was no security further on and that developers don't care about security. And that's just not true. Mm. Um, ultimately, security is no different in some ways to performance, to reliability, availability. And our engineers absolutely do care about that, both in Moonpig and I, I think in general. And so a lot of the things that we need to focus on is just how do we make it easier to have a conversation about security earlier on and to bring out from kind of within our heads all the things and considerations and worries that we have um, so that we can articulate them better to protect against them. But historically, when I've been involved with security teams, they yeah, they come along at the end, they do a pen test and they say, whoa, that's really bad, you can't go into production. <laughs> But you look at the results of that and it might be something I've seen, in it, especially when it's been left right to the end, uh, authentication authorization problems, in, especially in multi-layer, like multi-service architectures. But ultimately to fix an issue like that, you're almost talking about fairly significant re-architectures or a lot of engineering resource to look at, okay, well, where do we wanna handle authentication authorization? Should we do it everywhere? How do we distribute this? And so doing pen testing at the end isn't, it's not a bad thing, right? We should be doing that, that dynamic testing. It's a great way to build confidence, but that's what it should be for. It's building confidence. It shouldn't be as our only security check. And so um, like one of my favorite things, and I know um, Richard, you've experienced this before, is um, threat modeling is a way of having security brought to the forefront of everyone's mind really early on, super early on in the development life cycle. Yeah, um, so we, I've been through that session a few times and it's always been really in, really useful. And it's even silly things like we start thinking about what we're putting in the logs and stuff, you know, it, which we might not think about until too late otherwise. So it, it's definitely good for keeping it in the mind as you're going on. Can we, can we explain a bit what threat modeling is and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, threat modeling is a way of thinking about risks or threats within the context of something of value. I'll cover off really briefly risks and threats and vulnerabilities because I use them interchangeably. And <laughs> I imagine some people in the audience might be like, well, they're the same thing or they're not the same thing. Um, a risk is something that might happen, right? Uh, a vulnerability is a, a genuine, uh, I'm going to call it bug, not a feature, uh, that exists, right? So a risk is uh, someone, and this might be a positive risk, right? A risk is someone might access your website. It's not guaranteed. Um, for Moonpig, it's pretty good, it's pretty solid. But, that, but there's a risk that, or, or what we might phrase it as is there's a risk that no one goes to the website, but that's not a vulnerability. A vulnerability is um, maybe a, 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 you are vulnerable to a SQL injection attack on a login page, for example, or a search bar. And so you have um, a risk that if someone exploits that vulnerability, uh, you might see some damage, right? So from a SQL injection attack, we might see a data exfiltration or mm -hmm. um, we might end up being able to uh, be vulnerable to privilege escalation or something like that. And so I talk a lot about risks, vulnerabilities, exploits, and then also threats or threat vectors. These are everything from your script kiddies, people that run automated tooling like Burp Suite to have a bash um, through to nation state actors 
this is where we start to um, talk about organized crime and organized entities um, which target high value services. Now, nation state isn't something that Moonpig necessarily worry about, um, but it's a threat vector that's often considered. So when we think about threat modeling, what we're really doing is thinking about um, the thing that we're building or the thing we're doing. Um, for example, um, a feature on our website, maybe we're improving our uh, search function or our login page. And what we do is we run through a load of um, resources to help us think about what our threats could be, mm -hmm. who are our threat actors, what are our vulnerabilities, and then what the risk of that actually is. And some of the ways we've done this is we've used services uh, or acronyms like STRIDE. So what you do is you sit with your engineers and you have them think about the thing they've built. It's their baby. They've spent a long time building it. They know it inside and out. And so all you're really doing is pulling out of them things that they already know and rephrasing it in a way that allows us to discover vulnerabilities. And Stride is a way of working through that. And, and what you do with Stride is you cover off spoofing attacks and you run through, okay, are there ways for me to um, log in as, as someone else or, or perform an action looking like someone else? You go through tampering, I modify data, uh, repudiation. Um, this is often referred to in, in, in logs. And we talked about, you know, what if we accidentally write different things to logs? Repudiation is a way of either modifying or destroying logs. How do you know something has happened and how can you prove it? Uh, information disclosure, that's our data leakage. And denial of service, pretty straightforward one. Although the interesting thing with denial of service from a security concept is that it's often not just sending too many network packets. It could genuinely be a service failing and it being a single point of failure. So when we think about single AZ or single region deployments in the cloud, mm -hmm. um, that's another type of denial of service style attack. And then the last one is elevation of privilege. One thing that uh, security teams I think don't do well enough is we look at threats or vulnerabilities in isolation. And so a cross-site scripting attack isn't necessarily a big deal. But when you think about cross-site scripting attacks plus uh, maybe directory traversal or, or SQL injections, they become much more significant. And so that elevation of privilege is a, a one to focus for us when we think about whether we can chain vulnerabilities to, to do some cooler stuff. <laughs> um, and so what threat modeling does is it takes um, that what we're building, all that knowledge I mentioned that the developers have, what can go wrong, so that's that stride piece, and then we cover off what can we do about it. So what kind of fixes can we look at? And the idea is that you have all these people in the room together that know their application best, and you're not just picking holes in it, right? You're not just beating it up. You're strengthening it like a muscle. You're you're giving it a good workout and you're thinking, okay, we've, we really know this application inside out and I've genuinely been in threat models in previous companies where that's been the first time we've really documented what it is that we're building because sometimes it's super early on. Um, we've come up with a load of possible ways we can attack it and then we're gonna use that combined knowledge in the room to then come up with all of those possible mitigations, whether they're complete or partial. And it's a way of us understanding, okay, what can we, what can we do about it? And then the last piece, which is really key, is have we done a good job? Do we feel like we've got good coverage in our threat model? Do we feel like we've discussed the application in its entirety? Are there things we've missed? But it's also an opportunity to write tests. I'm quite passionate about this, and I think this is something that you guys are going to see over time as we evolve the maturity of the way security mm -hmm. work with engineering at Moonpig. 
The same way we can write functional tests, we can write security tests, right? So if we find vulnerabilities in threat models, um, there's no reason why we can't start to write tests to validate that not only have we fixed it once, but we've continued to fix forward. So that any um, features we release in the future, we don't reintroduce vulnerabilities. Yeah. So that is threat modeling in a is short, but not too short <laughs> nutshell. So you would do that before you build said feature or capability? Yeah, my preference always is to. I think you have to think about what's appropriate, right? So in a perfect world, we would do threat models for everything at every stage, but it's just not appropriate. We don't have mm. enough resources, but also it would slow you down. Mm. And for some features, you if we're talking about adding new cards to the website or um, a new page to a brochureware portion of a site, it's probably not um, not appropriate, depending on, I mean, it depends how much resource you've got, but it's, it might not be the right thing to do. Um, so what we start to think about is, first of all, how do we empower engineers to be familiar with the concepts of stride and the types of vulnerabilities that we often see in the application they're building so that they can, when they're maybe in stand-up or they're talking about a feature, they can very quickly run through either in their head or out loud, okay, can we think of any quick fire vulnerabilities? Mm -hmm. um, but where it might be a higher impact application, so if we think about building registration flows, we think about service-to-service um, -service authentication, anywhere where we're storing data that we would call important to us, <laughs> Um, they might be places where we want to do threat modeling. I'm, I prefer to do it way earlier on, and I'm sure when you guys talk about testing, you talk about that cost of fix earlier on, when you, you know, if you discover bugs, the same with pen yeah, testing. True. It's the same with threat modeling. The earlier we do it, the cost of fix is, is reduced, but there's still value after something's released. Mm. For us, the value might become more of discovering risk and understanding our risk appetite. Do we actually want to invest in this maybe legacy technology or in an area of technical debt when we're building something new? Um, or actually, do we feel like after doing threat modeling that we are more comfortable and actually maybe we are happy to, to leave something for now and move on to something else? Mm -hmm. I think what's, what struck me there actually is how broad um, the topic is and how, how do you prioritize the things that you go after and the things that are important to, to make sure they're secure and, or need fixing? It's <laughs> a good question. So there's a couple of ways that I have of quantifying the objective, right? So what type of data is involved, the criticality of the application to the business, whether there's any connectivity to our infrastructure, especially when we talk about third parties, right? If they've got direct connectivity to our cloud environments or data center or anything like that, that's something where it's a, a much higher level engagement. Um, but we also just start to have conversations more with engineers, right? So uh, I sit on the tech leadership team. I spend time talking to our engineering managers. I also just sit near engineers. Um, <laughs> and I, I try and create that environment where people can ask me questions. And sometimes they're very straightforward, very simple questions. Um, sometimes they kind of lead forward to that area of, okay, maybe it's worth diving in there a bit more. Mm. So there is an objective way of, of deciding when we get involved, but ultimately, if something's important to a team or a business, we're never going to turn their question down. Um, equally for me, guidelines and best practice documents and wikis are really important. Um, I've been talking to a lot of teams over the last couple of years, especially kind of in this post-GDPR about secure cookies, um, you know, what flags to have enabled, those types of things. And so having a lot of data available to engineers when they need it 
let's not call them standards and guardrails because sometimes that's not appropriate. Sometimes it is. But having those guidelines available to engineers actually gets rid of a lot of those initial questions and so engagement becomes really easy. Mm. Um, if we start to think about automated tooling, which is something I think is starting to become more and more important, that also re reduces the burden on the security team um, as this great training, right? So one of the things that I am really excited to be doing this year, which will be news to you guys, <laughs> um, is how to hack training. So Ooh. teaching our engineers how to hack web applications. And again, that's just another way of reducing the burden on the team. Um, but ultimately, my hope is that I create a security team whereby we get asked all sorts of questions. We use that as an opportunity to create a wiki. Yeah. Um, but we create open door sessions. We have Slack channels, we, which we already have. Um, and we create a way where people feel easy to engage quickly. And I, I think something from just like my personal experience, I always was really interested in kind of like this, how do, how would I exploit the vulnerability mm -hmm. or like hack training, something's really important, but it's such a massive topic, right? It, it's such an incredibly big thing to tackle that I was always like, well, I wouldn't even know where to get started. So I think by having someone like you who has like so much knowledge and can introduce people to like bits and just be able to answer questions and be like, Oh, yeah, might not know right now but this is how we can find out and like look at it from the other perspective not how do i defend myself but how would i attack something that builds this knowledge of like how can i now protect myself against it i think that's that's really interesting and it's pretty cool yeah i think um i'm glad you said that and the how to hack training i think always goes down well i did it in a previous company and it, i think the thing that came out that was most interesting was we It, it really strengthened the relationship between security and engineering teams because mm. engineering teams felt a bit more empowered, but they also felt like we demystified a really like weird part of the security world to them, which was pen testing. Um, there's always this idea that pen testers are these crazy, nerdy, knowledgeable people that come in and they sit in a corner and they just they hack and you're not really sure how they do it. Um, I think everyone's going to be really disappointed when they realize they literally have a checklist of attacks. <laughs> it's just a playbook, right? It's like functional tests. <laughs> they just run through a list and they run through these exploits. And that's really how a lot of pen tests work. Not all. There's some great pen testers out there. And there's nothing wrong with that. That mm. still tests our environment. But it's actually fairly an, a fairly objective and a, a process. And so mm. there's no reason why we can't teach our engineers to do that. The expectation isn't going to be that you pen test everything you work on. But hopefully what it does is it empowers you to increase your own skills, but also encourages you to think about, as you said, like, is this vulnerable or how would I exploit this? And so I think it'll also just be really fun. Um, where I want to take it is I want to <laughs> I want to get teams to try and break each other's stuff. I think it would be kind of fun. So a bit like a, we call them red v blue team hackathons, but I effectively want to get one area of the, the of the website teams to try and hack another areas and see what they can find, whilst that team are actively trying to deploy fixes and vice versa. I think it's a way of kind of building that conversation between teams, having fun with that, um, being competitive against each other, but then also helping us to understand the types of vulnerabilities and exploits we have. When you look at events like that, the type of vulnerabilities that you're going to try and exploit on their side is probably indicative of the types of vulnerabilities you think that you have <laughs> in your own application. And so it's a good way for us all to think about how we can 
both test for exploits and then fix them, which hopefully then becomes a really natural part of the way you develop. And we talked about that right at the beginning, which is how do we allow this to become just part of the way we build? And things like that are a way of just becoming a natural part of the way mm. you build the same way you might just do load testing. Yeah. And I guess for like the the hack hackathons, hack hackathons, all all you basically need is like a lot of black hoodies, right? Because yeah. that's, that's what we learned from Mr. Robot. <laughs> You're not wearing a black hoodie today, which is... No, really I don't think <laughs> I'm not even sure I own one. And sunglasses. And I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I think that's it, right? Like security doesn't have to be this like obscure character that says in the corner. <laughs> um, my hope is that I get to a world where people are like, oh, so the security team don't really need to do anything for our developers because they will do it. So uh, maybe you should, you know, <laughs> I think um, I think there's always going to be a job for security folk, but I'm going to work in the hope or, and towards a world where perhaps we don't need them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've got a question for you about uh, building software. Um, you mentioned that there's already a trade-off between uh, the risks and the vulnerabilities and how hard it might be to actually deal with them in the code. So that's, that's an interesting trade-off that we have to balance. But there's a sec another trade-off, I think, which is usability. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I mean, we talked about captures a while back, and I don't think anyone likes them. <laughs> but because of the user experience, right? Um, so how do you manage things like that? And the trade-off between this, this is going to be really secure and this is going to be really usable. So there's this um, great Dilbert comic uh, where it says to log into your machines, stare directly at the sun. <laughs> and, it, and it talks about how we've kind of continued to evolve in this world of authentication to this point where we have a minimum of 24 character credentials <laughs> with no um, ascending or descending um, partner characters next to each other <laughs> and a mixture of symbols and uppercase and lowercase and numbers and... Uh, maybe even characters from a different alphabet, like all of these things. And then you have MFA and maybe captures and uh, risk-based identity on top of it. And so, yeah, you create this world where you're effectively saying to your user, maybe just write it down on the desk next to you. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there's a huge trade-off. I think one of the frustrations that I've seen over the last three years is that clearly user experience and products are just not a part of security teams unless it's a vendor. And I think that's a real shame. I think that we would probably be years ahead in terms of security of all of our software if user experience was a part of what we did. And so a huge part when we think about security at Moonpig, you know, we need to really consider how we want to communicate, how we produce resources that are actually consumable. I talk about wikis my bugbearer wikis that aren't written, they're written like Wikipedia entries, right? Rather than maybe even a Stack Overflow response. And so that's a huge frustration for me. But when we think about our products for customers, the risk is even higher in that if I create a bar that's too high, if I ask for all of these things for you to even log in, you might just choose not to use my product. And so there's all of a sudden a balance that isn't just a, well, the risk is we have an insecure product. It's a risk that we have an insecure product that doesn't make us any money and doesn't have any customers or any users. Um, the key piece for me there is, is always testing the same way products do feature tests, right? And we, um, I know you've had a conversations before about things like A-B testing. 
we have to think about from a security perspective, what's our risk appetite, right? Mm. Based on the threat actors that we see. So again, those are, you know, are we seeing more reconnaissance style, script kitty style attacks? Or are we seeing highly advanced, um, highly targeted nation state style attacks? You have a, an idea of what your risk appetite is. And then you can start to think about what type of data am I protecting? How far do I need to go? And we know that our risk landscape is going to be very different to financial services, to government services, to charities. And so we can start to think about what's appropriate for us. I'm always going to say, do the most secure option. <laughs> um, but that's why you don't just think about risk in the t context of security. You think about the business as well. And so... When I present my risk, I will often sit next to a product owner who will talk mm. about the business value of doing something or not doing something. And then we start to think about, can we meet each other halfway? And so where, that's where we get to the world of, okay, a minimum of 10 characters for a password is probably appropriate. Mm. Let's maybe not talk about enforcing symbols, but let's try and talk about numbers and letters and mm. a mix of upper and lower case and things like that. And that's where you get to what's the best thing for my customer um, and what's right for them. I talked about writing passwords down. I actually have no problem with that in certain use cases, which I think is kind of controversial. <laughs> so if you're talking about your grandma who lives alone or, or you know, has a, a little notebook that she keeps in her bedroom on her bedside table with her passwords on, I genuinely have no problem with that, right? If you think about how hard it would be to get those passwords, probably way harder than trying to get them out of... Um, a really shoddy data store somewhere. Mm. Um, what I do have a problem with is where we create an environment where people feel like they have to bypass authentication measures just to use something or whereby we create this environment, which is what we've done in our world at the moment, where everyone uses the same password everywhere. Yeah. And so all it takes is for it to be compromised in one place and it's compromised everywhere. Yeah, that's very true. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> um, That was, that was all really great. It was amazing. Uh, thank you very much. I, I have a, a last question for you before we wrap up, which is normally we did like silly comparison questions at the end, but I actually have a bit more genuine one. What's your favorite like attack or exploit or vulnerability, if you have one? So, um, Stuxnet was a really interesting one for me, for those of you that might be familiar with Stuxnet, if either of you guys are. This was, um, uh, I'm not going to tell the story very well, but this was a nuclear power plant um, style attack um, between America and Iran. This is super cool because for me, it's super cool. <laughs> it, ultimately, it came from a worm, right, which is a, a piece of, of malware, which is just malicious software. Um, and they believe it came via a contractor who um, had a USB stick, we know the story, um, and ultimately infected a load of, of um, systems within a nuclear power plant. But what was really cool about it is they were they were trying to create um, uranium for, for nuclear uh, warheads, and um, part of their process is to, and I'm going to forget the word of the machine, but they, they spin these metal vials, right, to try and create the product, And what the worm did is under very specific conditions is they just modified ever so slightly um, the RPM. <laughs> and, and so what happened is the glass would keep shattering 
Uh, and they spent a really long time in this nuclear power plant trying to work out what was happening. Um, and it literally was a worm this whole time that only activated in certain conditions. It actually passed through, um, it, it, it uh, went across way more machines than they ever expected. Um, but it was only triggered on machines running certain software um, uh, for these um, rotation of these glass vials. So like a centrifuge? That's it, yes, sorry, ah. a centrifuge, yeah. <laughs> so it only triggered four centrifuges, but ultimately infected what ended up being, I think, millions of computers around the world. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, changed the speed of the centrifuge just enough to not be detected and ultimately destroyed um, the uranium for this, power, this nuclear power plant so that they couldn't create warheads. Um, it was discovered because it ended up being such a successful worm that it went outside of the nuclear power plant because some of these contractors were then going and using their personal machines when they maybe shouldn't have been. Um, it then went across the whole of the US and, and Europe to the point where Symantec then discovered it and then um, being the good citizens that they are, created a signature for the virus, um, updated their AV and then reported on it. Uh, and then it was only then that a lot of governments were able to determine what had happened. There's a great book by someone called Kim Zetter on Stuxnet called um, Zero Day. And uh, the actual, all of the different attacks that combined to do it, just hugely incredible. It's really cool. And it just kind of talks about um, how you can create, um, you can ultimately use these security vulnerabilities to really annoy people <laughs> and i just love the idea of these scientists being in these um in this laboratory and just spending and they spent months trying to work out why all these glass valves were, were just shattering all of the time and it was um at one point it wasn't just the ipm they were getting they were modifying the centrifuges to cause a a slight resonation like a high-pitched noise that would cause the glass valves to shatter but when um you couldn't hear them and so it was really cool um, really different um, and so yeah I love attacks like that I think it's um, such a creative world um, hackers mm. I think you have to be so innovative not all the time there's way too many sites that are vulnerable to really easy attacks but you can be so innovative so creative in your attacks and I genuinely think it's really impressive um, but not enough credit is given to the ones that defend against it right the defensive techniques you can get against attacks can be just as cool can be just as different it's just about having the time and the capacity to to do that side too not the heroes we deserve but the heroes <laughs> we need <laughs> <laughs> thank you that was great uh yeah thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today that was really interesting and thank you very much dear listeners until next time bye 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 Moon pig. hey jacob i thought that was another great episode yeah, wasn't it? It was really good. Yeah, I do have some feedback. How can I get that to you? Oh, great. So you can either send an email to techpodcast at moonpig.com or tweet at moonpigtech. Sure, that's great. I will definitely do that. Thanks, man. Amazing.